Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. We'll take an opportunity now to uh, study a little bit from our Torah portion. Uh, the Parsha this week is Parshat Pinchas. Parshat Pinchas is uh, packed with a lot of disparate material, uh, as is uh, often the case in the Book of Numbers. Uh, each portion uh, contains several mini portions. Uh, and Pinchas, of course, picks up on the story from last week's Torah portion, where uh, Pinchas, the uh, grandson of Aaron the priest, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, uh, takes matters into his own hands during a time of uh, communal calamity uh, and in an act of uh, religious zealotry uh, uh, executes two individuals uh, who are committing questionable acts uh, on holy ground. And our portion this week opens with God awarding Pinchas with a brit shalom, with a covenant of peace. That is in itself a rich area for discussion and conversation and worthy of, uh, of, of bringing up. And we may uh, indeed talk a little bit about that this morning, but where I want to focus our attention is Numbers chapter 27, which is about halfway into the Torah portion this week. Uh, if you are looking at the Eitz Chaim Chumash, it's on page 925. And it begins this, begins this way. Vatikravna benot lafchad ben chefer ben gilad ben machir ben menashe le mishpachat menashe ben yosef ve eleshmut benotav machla noa ve hogla milka ve tirza ve taamodna lipne moshe ve lipne elazar kohen ve lipne hanesiim ve hoad haeda petach ohel moed le mor. The daughters of Tzalafachad of the Manassite family of the tribe of Menashe, son of Hefer, son of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menashe, son of Joseph, came forward. The names of the daughters were Machla, Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Tirza. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the chieftains, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not one of the faction, Korach's faction, which banded together against the infinite, but died for his own sin, and he has left no sons. Let not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. Moses brought their case before the infinite. And the infinite said to Moses, the plea of Tzalafachad's daughters is just. You should give them a hereditary holding among their father's kinsmen. Transfer their father's share to them. Further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a man dies without leaving a son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall assign his property to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall assign his property to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, you shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan, and he shall inherit it. This shall be the law of procedure for the Israelites in accordance with the infinite's command to Moses. 
This story is commonly and colloquially known as the uh, story, the petition of uh, Benot Salafachad, the daughters of Salafachad. Uh, and it is often celebrated uh, as uh, one example of uh, the Torah being ahead of its time in, in many ways, uh, of, of being, in, in a sense, um, a, a proto-feminist document, a uh, proto-feminist text that, uh, that, that asserts uh, uh, the rights of women, limited as they were in the ancient world, uh, and that uh, showcases uh, the courage and the bravery of uh, a group of women standing up to the most powerful person in their community demanding justice. Uh, but of course, as many things are in the Torah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, and so I've invited a very special guest this morning to help us make sense of this and our whole Torah portion and uh, our current moment, uh, my sister-in-law, Dr. Judith Rosenbaum, who is the uh, executive director of Jewish Women's Archive. Jewish Women's Archive is a national organization dedicated to collecting and promoting the extraordinary stories of Jewish women. JWA explores the past as a framework for understanding the issues important to women today, inspires young people with remarkable role models, and uses Jewish women's stories to excite people to see themselves as agents of change. Uh, and Judith is uh, one of my role models, and so it's uh, fitting for her to uh, be here and to be representing uh, Jewish Women's Archive uh, so wonderfully. And uh, Judith, first, are you there? And how are you doing? I am here. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you Shabbat so shalom. much for inviting me to be with you and your community today. It's wonderful to see you and to see some other folks that I know, and I'm excited to be in conversation about this Parsha, which is a great Parsha. Thanks. It's wonderful to have you. How are you? How is your family? We're doing okay. Thank God. You know, it's every day feels like a new adventure and lots of motions running high. I have twins who are 13, as you know. So, you know, I think we would have a lot of uh, melodrama in our household, even if uh, things were normal, but things aren't normal. So we take it day by day. Yeah. And one of the last times I traveled out of town pre-pandemic was for the twins uh, B'nai Mitzvah. Uh, and so, you know, hold that memory very uh, sweetly in my mind as we're stuck at, at home, not able to go anywhere. So I remember fondly being in Boston for that. Yes, it was wonderful to have you all here. Uh, so, okay. So, Judith, we have the story of the daughters of Salaf um, what do you What do you make of this story? Well, as you said, there's so much here. And, and one of the things that I always like to do when we look at a text like this is to you know look at the specific text itself but also look at the context it's placed in so you know it's coming first of all right after we have all this whole litany of generations and and names and then you get to the names of the daughters of Slavchad. and in fact they're named you know in their lineage as you read um going back to joseph and then also given their individual names and that to me is the first really striking thing about this story because um it's really a very stark appearance in the text. You have name after name after name of fathers and sons and so-and-so begat so-and-so and just, you know, all these men. And then suddenly you get to these women. And it, um, I mean, I, I'm always looking for women in the text. So for me, it's like, a, aha, finally, right? But I think for anybody, it's, it's a notable shift in the narrative. And I think that one of the important things that a story like this does, even before you dig into the details of the story, is it reminds us, oh, right, 
there are the people who are named in the text, and then there are so many people who we are not hearing, whose, whose voices are not heard, whose names are not mentioned, who are also there. And it serves as this kind of like catches us in this moment of being like, oh yeah, we have to be thinking about all the other people who we haven't heard. And that to me is one of the biggest um, kind of challenges or calls of the text is to turn our attention to the folks who are not usually part of the narrative and not usually mentioned. Um, so it kind of challenges us to think back to everything that we've been hearing and, and kind of turn our attention to it in a little bit of a different way or look sort of between the lines a little bit. You know, that's, that's so, that's so interesting that you bring that up. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the um, challenging aspects of this narrative, you know, is that, you know, it's sometimes it's held up as a, you know, a, a, a model of uh, how progressive, at least for its time, the, the Torah was. But, you know, the fact that this story, you know, singles out uh, five women who were prepared to stand up for their rights, um, and that is notable in the Torah, um, speaks to the uh, absence in so many places in the Torah of women's stories and women's voices. Right. And I think what's interesting to me here is that this story comes in the midst of a time in the Torah where we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, you could call it sort of power plays, you could call it sort of struggling to figure out how change is going to be made. So, you know, you talked about how this comes on the heels of Pinchas most directly, where you see someone who is uh, taking a very violent action to try to make a correction that he thinks has not been sufficiently made. Um, but even just a couple of weeks ago, we had the story of Korach, who brings this strange fire and is wiped out for that. So we see this place where people are trying to, you know, now they're like, whatever it is, about 40 years into the wandering in the wilderness, and they're, they're coming into their own as actors in this community and in this story. And they're trying to figure out how is it that we get to, to you know, find our place or make change or respond as full actors in this story. And there's a lot of mistakes that are made along the way, right? Like we see lots of different models of how this happens and it's mostly pretty complicated and not super smooth or successful, um, which I think is an accurate depiction of the kind of pangs of, you know, communal change. Um, and then you have the daughters of Slobchad who come into the story and, um, and it's a peaceful encounter. I mean, one must assume that it's a tense encounter because women are not usually coming forward in this kind of public way. And in, in fact, I think the fact that the, they speak and immediately Moses turns to God suggests to us that like Moshe was just like, this is unprecedented. I have no idea how to respond. God, you know, <laughs> somebody like I literally have no idea what to say. Um, but I think it's really so. We had we had a uh, um, a congressperson uh, in our region here uh, who, um, in in the uh, around 2017, uh, before the 2018 election, um, was made infamous because he was caught a video saying, you know, um, uh, these women are all up in my grill uh, when uh, when groups of women were confronting him about uh, uh, about uh, some of the. Uh, uh, some of their problems with uh, with with the current administration and and uh, his uh, uh, actions in in Congress, his votes in Congress. Uh, uh, you know, there's these these groups of women activists uh, locally who were who were um, uh, 
taking matters into their own hands, you know, much like the daughters of Slavchad. And, and so um, one of the, one of the um, uh, pieces of the puzzle that people say ultimately led to his defeat was his uh, derisive attitude toward the women who were uh, asking him hard and pointed questions, right? So yeah, I, could, I just imagine Moses here in a way saying like, like, oh, I don't know what to do. All these women are up in my grill. Right, and thank God Moshe's not on a hot mic, and he right. also he also is a man of few words, we know, so maybe was less likely to speak out in that way. He swallowed those words, maybe. But, you know, you could see turning to God in that moment as being a response of just like, I literally have no idea how to respond. But also it suggests that it's like he takes it seriously. He doesn't just turn them away and say like, yeah, whatever, we don't listen to women, or why are you even approaching me? How dare you? You know, there are a lot of possibilities you could imagine that would fit into the time, certainly, that would be a very different outcome. So the fact that Moses turns immediately to God, I think is is telling, but it's also, this is a, and then God responds affirmatively says, they are right, their claim is right, they speak justly, however you wanna interpret the word Cain, right? Um, so I think that here in some ways, what I think is really exciting about this, beyond the, the, the fact that it sets some kind of legal precedent, which truthfully, I don't know how much it was actually implemented, but suggests that there is a right of inheritance, which should not be taken lightly, because that's something that into the 20th century, many, many um, Western countries were still trying to figure out how to uh, have you know, inheritance rights for women. Um, there is, I think that this is a model of how like legal change happens in a Jewish context and it is led by women. So that I think is not to be overlooked. And I think there is even more so we can look at some of the language of how they approach. And we think, I mean, I think we've all been talking so much in recent weeks about, you know, how do we make change and what is the, you know, how, um, how do we talk in a way that people can hear us? How do we, when is it okay to be angry? When, what does protest look like? What's effective protest? And I think looking at some of their language of what the, the language that the text shows us of how Slavchad's daughters approach, I think is really also a kind of interesting model. So they start by Batikravna, um, they approach, they get close, and then um, they say in verse two, they stand up, they you know, kind of rise before Moshe. And, and I really like both of those because I think that they speak to, um, you know, they speak to a certain kind of attitude or maybe it's like a recommendation of ways that we can make change and be heard. First of all, they get close. And I think this is something that we've talked, we talk about a lot now in Kind of communities that are interested in social justice is this issue of proximity, right? Like in order to understand something, you have to get proximate to it as we've learned from um, Brian Stevenson to talk about. Uh, you know, there's a sense that like you have to, you can't comment on something or demand something from afar. You have to really have some kind of approach, some kind of closeness. Um, and then with Ta'amodna, they also stand up, right? So the sense that like, it's not enough to approach. It's not enough to be close. You also have to be willing to kind of erect yourself, right? To, to stand up, to, to be outspoken. And, um, and I love that as a kind of like one-two punch, this idea that you, there has to be a closeness there, but there also has to be a kind of risk of standing up. And maybe there's a risk in getting close too. There, there's a risk in both places, but there's something relational and there's something confrontational. And I think that both of those pieces need to work together. 
Well, sure. I mean, there, it's it's certainly risky for them to come closer. We have instances in uh, in the text, in the book of Leviticus, book of Numbers, where, where people come close uh, in a way that's not authorized and, you know, a fire breaks out and burns them alive, right? So um, so there's there's definite risk in, in what they're doing here. There's a, and there's a couple of threads that I want to uh, pull on in, in what you're saying. The, the first is um, how novel this is and whether it was implemented or not. After we uh, discussed that a little bit in preparing for our conversation today, I, I, I tried to look it up a little bit um, and, and I didn't find a lot about how it uh, ended up being implemented um, throughout ancient Israelite history or medieval Israelite history. But uh, Robert Alter uh, says about it um, that, uh, that, that this is, uh, this is unique uh, in the ancient Near East. He says the notion of daughters inheriting was exceptional in the ancient Near East. Um, but then he also goes on to add that this story is something other than a feminist argument, right? So he says that the, the issue here is not necessarily about women's rights, uh, but about the concern is the, the perpetuation of the father's name, right? The name of the clan. So, um, so it's, it's kind of this tension between uh, the uh, ability of um, these women to, uh, to, to have a holding, to inherit property, uh, and, uh, and to, to assert their own claim and to assert their own rights, but also their claim not really being about themselves, being about their own name, right? It's about the, uh, the, the perpetuation of their father's name, um, which, uh, which I think makes this a little bit complicated as a, um, uh, you know, as a, as, as a, feminist narrative. Right. Um, and I think later on, there's actually a limitation that's put yeah. on who they can marry, right? Yeah. So that they're mm -hmm. actually only allowed to marry within the tribe of Menashe so that the land wouldn't transfer. And, and I think that that is a really important reminder that like often there are things that are sort of touted as these feminist uh, advances. And because they take place within a larger framework that is a patriarchal framework, it is very partial. And sometimes the things that we try to make change in are really you know, sort of hampered or hemmed in by the larger, the larger system, which is why so, you know, so much now we're talking about, well, let's look at the, the systems, let's look at the systemic inequality, because making changes in, in little ways sometimes actually doesn't kind of undermine the bigger problem in the same way. Right. So I think that that's an, an interesting question that, that um, I, I imagine that many of us have. Um, but, you know, it's because of, you know, how rooted our um, entire way of life is, um, the, the way we orient toward the world, the way our systems and institutions are built, um, are, are kind of built in the framework of patriarchy. It's hard to imagine for some of us what it would look like if it wasn't, right? So like, can you tell us like what the vision would be for to be outside the framework of that patriarchal uh, system? And, and are we getting there? Mm. That's a very big question. And of course, I'm also within a system of patriarchal framework. So it's not like I exist outside of that either. Um, but, you know, I think some of the ways that, like, you know, this year we're celebrating the suffrage centennial, right, which brought uh, the right to vote for women on a federal level to at least white women. <laughs> I mean, theoretically to everybody, but as we know, really to white women. Um, and I think when we look at the sort of very long history of the suffrage movement, which took many decades, really generations, you know, like, 75 years. Um, one of the things that we can see is that there was this process of trying to say, okay, so what's the kind of key that's going to unravel the whole thing, right? Is it, um, is it being allowed to vote? Well, that gives us a lot of power to maybe make changes in other things, but 
is it about being able to have rights as a married person? Because in this country, as in most Western societies, I, probably most societies in the world, uh, the system was that once you married, you you subsume as a woman, your identity was subsumed under your husband's and you didn't have any rights. Either your rights as a person basically belong to your father or belong to your husband. It wasn't until the 1970s, thanks to our great uh, Congresswoman Bella Abzug, a feisty Jewish woman, if there ever was one, that women were allowed to, married women were allowed to hold credit cards in their own names. Women could, married women could not have their own credit line. They could not have their own credit card. Um, so, and that's into the 1970s, right? So um, it's those kinds of things like recognizing like, okay, voting is important because it gives us a way to make change. But if we don't actually have the ability to divorce people, right? If we can't get out of relationships that might be abusive, if we don't have rights to our own children, which even if we have the right to divorce, if we can't take our children with us, then people might not want to be able to leave their their husbands. If we can't have our own um, access to money, and therefore there is no way for us to be individual women in the world because we don't have access to money, sort of like picking apart the different pieces. And um, I don't know that there's one overall vision, except that it has to do with ultimately identifying women as sovereign humans that have dignity and rights like anybody else and can have control over these different aspects of their life. And when we see this, I think, very starkly in the debates right now around reproductive rights, because that's one of the real keys. If you can't control when and if you have children, uh, that puts a real limitation on being able to control any other part of one's life. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that. You know, um, is is uh, how precarious do you feel like this moment is, or how, uh, or, or is it actually a moment of opportunity when it comes to reproductive rights? You know, it's 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 just really intriguing that you know there's there's for some reason um, a debate over whether uh, one should wear a, a face mask in in public, despite the. Um, the, the clear recommendation that it would that it that it halts the spread of, of coronavirus, but yet all of a sudden people are are demanding you know the the government can't tell me what to do with my own body, uh, and this, those are some of the same people who you know are, are the most vociferous about uh, um, telling uh, women what they can or can't do with their own bodies. Yeah, I think it's really important to look at where um, folks that might be less interested in women's independence and freedom put their energy and and we need to pay attention to those things too so i would say that beyond you know we think a lot in this country about abortion rights because so much energy has focused around roe v wade um i actually think that uh access to birth control is probably just as important right now as a focus because that's a place where you know okay let's let's go to the issue even before that right let's go to birth control and and again those rights are not secure, as we know from the most recent decision that um, took birth control off the things that need to be covered by the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, and again, looking at history, like the right for married women to have birth, to get birth control was only given in the 70s. So this is, again, like recent history. How significant in your mind is the Equal Rights Amendment? So Virginia uh, became the, uh, the, the uh, I think it's 38th state, the final state uh, to vote for ratification, which means it puts it over the uh, the, the top, assuming that it uh, clears some legal battles to um, actually make it uh, law. Um, assuming it does become law, how, how significant a step is that in your view? Yeah, that was pretty exciting to see. Um, I guess it sort of depends how important you think symbols are. Like it's pathetic to think that we don't have, I mean, most people I think actually don't realize that the constitution doesn't provide equal rights for women. 
um, it sounds so people have this idea oh the equal rights amendment must be something very complicated rather than just basically like two sentences that say like the rights shouldn't be a you know a bridge based on sex right um so i think it's pretty important as a kind of fundamental statement and and the truth is that a lot of the debates that happened around suffrage in um the post-civil war period were around this question of like is this going to be a time when as we're adding amendments that um and slavery and give rights based on race, can we put sex in there too? And that was where there was like a huge controversy and split between the abolitionist movement and the suffrage movement, which really had worked hand in hand until that point. Um, so I think it is, it is very important in terms of creating like a foundation, but then as we know, the way that things appear then gets, uh, you know, it works its way through the courts in terms, an amendment that's very broad is then going, there's going to be a lot of work to figure out what does this actually mean and how is it applied. So I don't know that it would actually um, immediately have a huge impact on women's lives. I think it would be something that would then take years and years of judicial kind of explication to figure out how it was going to be applied. And I don't have a huge amount of faith that there wouldn't be ways for people to, you know, trim it and whittle it down until it meant almost nothing. You know, and, and, and what you bring up there, you know, is, uh, is, is it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of, of you know, who's left out of the conversation, right? And, uh, so I, I have that question about, you know, this moment where we're reckoning with, with uh, white supremacy and racism and, and racial justice in, in this country. Um, but there's, I think, a, a, a legitimate question about, you know, who's, who's being left out of that conversation, you know? So the, the Supreme Court just had a, a monumental ruling, uh, at least in the eyes of, uh, of Native peoples, about uh, the rights of uh, Native Americans um, uh, within, within uh, you know, to the, the, the federal government to honor uh, treaties with, with Native, Native populations. You know, here in, in Richmond, you know, there were um, protests, like specifically, holding up uh, black women and uh, 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 black LGBT people who um, feel like they are um, at risk of being left out of the conversation about racial justice uh, that, that, you know, like you said, you know, in conversations about abolition, conversations about the rights that were given to uh, African-Americans uh, after the end of slavery, um, you know, uh, uh, women's movements uh, tried to make the argument that uh, women should be included in the expansion of rights and um, and were routinely denied until uh, into the 20th century. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, is, is this moment where we're grappling with racism, and racial justice, like, like, should we deal with that and deal with other things later? Or is all of our liberation tied up together? and We need to deal with all of it simultaneously. I would say B. I mean, it's it's harder to do, and it's um, and it's messy, and I think that's why our instinct is to be like, let's tackle what's what's more obvious and what's more straightforward first, and at least make some progress. But um, I think that that comes out of the ways in which we've been trained to sort of hierarchize people's needs, and rather than seeing things as a more you know kind of organic, holistic system where you can't just address a piece of the problem. I think there's actually a lesson for this in the text as well. Um, one of the other things that I love about this Parsha is it brings back this little known figure, Sarah Bat Asher, Sarah, the daughter of Asher. I was hoping is, you'd bring up Sarah Bat Asher. She's one of my faves. I absolutely love her. Um, so she appears twice in the Torah, although in many places in the Midrash. She appears in Genesis where 
and again, another sort of generations litany where they're talking about all the different people who went down to Egypt um, with Jacob. And so she's mentioned there, um, or maybe it's all the people who leave Egypt. No, it's all the people who go down to Egypt. And then she's mentioned again here as among the people who are about to go into the land. So the rabbis, of course, look at this and say, huh, well, in biblical time, that's like 450 years. So how could this be the same person be alive then and now? Well, she must have been sort of this immortal figure who is granted extra time. And they create this kind of whole mythical story about her. And she appears in many different stories in the Midrash as this figure whose job it is to kind of hold collective memory and remember certain key pieces that are essential for the redemption of the Israelites. So one of the things she remembers is when they're leaving Egypt, they had promised to take um, Jacob's bones with them. Jacob's bones? Joseph's bones? I can't remember now whose bones, but they're supposed to take either Jacob's or Joseph's bones, which have been buried somewhere, but- Sorry, I forgot I was muted. Uh, Joseph's bones. Joseph's bones, right. But it's hundreds of years later, they don't know where Joseph's bones are anymore. Um, and so they're very worried because they're like, we know we're supposed to take them and we don't know where they are and where you have to leave in haste and what are we supposed to do? And Seraph Bad Asher appears and she remembers where they were buried because of course she was alive then, right? And she tells them and they're able to go. Um, there's another story that Rabbi Yochanan in the time of the rabbis is sitting in a Beit Midrash and they're reading about the splitting of the sea and they are um, talking about what do the walls of this, like when the split sit, split, what did that mean? Like how were the walls of water, how did they appear? And Rabbi Yochanan says, well, they were like a wall. And she pipes up from the back of the room, she appears and pipes up from the back of the room in her role as you know, holder of communal memory and says, no, 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 they weren't like a wall. They were like windows. They were transparent. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan defers to her and says, oh, okay, so we have this knowledge, right? And I love this story because I think that it speaks to two really important things. Um, one, that women are often the, it's a reminder that women are often the carriers of our collective memory. And I, as somebody who studies women's history and whose you know, work is devoted to making sure that when we tell the story of the Jewish people, women's voices and experiences and stories are front and center because I think we have a lot to learn from them. Um, I love, you know, she's a great figure for that. Um, but I think the other thing to remember that is really relevant to so many things that are happening right now is that she is um, turned to this, you know, random woman basically um, is turned to as the person who these exalted leaders like Rabbi Yochanan and you know others who are arranging the you know leaving from Egypt turn to as their um, kind of the person to tell us what we should remember and when you think about I and mean, we're talking so much about communal memory and you know commemoration and you know all the ways that we try to hold up history in different ways and you know most of the time we talk about history it's like it's the story of the victors right you put up the statues of well maybe not in the south you don't put up the statues <laughs> of the people who won you put up the statues of the people who lost in an effort to imagine that they might have won right um but there's it's a participation sense, trophy right exactly it's it's a we wish the story were otherwise and so we'll create this this uh, monument to have that fantasy but it's but there, but statues are not generally put up by the marginal people on society. They're put up by the people who have the power to put up a statue, right? And here we have this different model with Sarah Badasher, which is that it's not that the rabbis of the Talmud are saying, here's the person that we're going to memorialize. They turn to this 
you know, basically nameless woman in the back of um, the room who no one knows who she is or where she came from and, and says, okay, we'll, we'll take your version of this, right? So I think it's a, it's a reminder that like we do best when we turn to the marginal people, the people on the margins and ask them, what is the story that we need to remember? Um, and that's, I think we're in the midst of that reckoning right now saying, okay, we've been remembering certain people um, and now we need to change how we remember them. And I think about this even in terms of like all the conversation that's been happening this week around Hamilton. I'm a huge fan of Hamilton. I have been, I was like an early adopter. I was listening to it before it went to Broadway um, and love that story and love the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, kind of played with the story and, and changed it by making all the players people of color. But I feel like now, five years later or whatever it is, I, I watched it again last weekend and I thought, well, truthfully, I, when I finally saw it a few years ago, I felt this way too, but I felt like really, it's not enough to make all the characters African-American. You actually need to tell the African-American stories and the women's stories and not just the stories of the founding fathers in, in different shape. That's an important step too, but like we need to turn to the people who weren't the founding fathers and ask them for their version of this. Um, and I think that's part of what Sarah Fadasha reminds us. Like you always need to look to the margins because those are the people who are gonna give you the version of the story that you actually need to hear. I, I, I love that. We could have a whole other uh, episode uh, or other opportunity to talk, to unpack Hamilton. Um, and so maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that. I, I you know, bringing up Sarah Fadasher, uh, you know, is, is meaningful for, for two reasons. You know, one is, um, so, my kids always ask me to tell the mummy story and like the only mummy story I know is the story of Joseph <laughs> getting mummified and then getting put in a sarcophagus and the sarcophagus is in the river in the Nile and we need Sarah but so Sarah Badasher is the hero of the mummy story uh, but uh, but but also you know because it points to the this fact that uh, throughout the Torah even though you know, women are often marginal or invisible figures in, in the narrative. Um, They're actually the ones that drive the narrative forward, uh, uh, not only in the Midrashic reading of the narrative, but in the narrative itself, right? So the, in the Exodus story, right, the, the Exodus would not have happened were it not for the midwives, were it not for um, uh, uh, Yocheved uh, or Miriam or Tzipporah, uh, uh, Batya, who the rabbis named Pharaoh's daughter, is unnamed in the text. Um, right, Shifra so Right, Shifra and Pua, the midwives. So, so that's really significant. And uh, of this story, the daughters of Tzalavachad, Ra um, Robert Alter points this out. Rashi notes that this episode immediately follows a mention of the ten fearful spies, construes it as a special argument in behalf of the role of women as opposed to men in the wilderness narrative. The men say in Numbers 14, let us make us put up a head and return to Egypt. And the women say in this text, give us a holding in the promised land. Mm. Right? So, so the women are the ones who say, let's keep on marching. Let's go forward. I want to have a stake in the future. And the men are saying, no, let's go back to Egypt. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, again, is like an argument for why you follow the people who are on the margins because they have a bigger stake in making things better as opposed to folks who may want to just hold on to the, the limited power that they have. And so the, there's one final thing I want to bring up because the one thread that we, we haven't pulled as much on is, you know, you mentioned about the language that's used when the women approach Moshe, right? Uh, that, uh, um, uh, that, um, 
it's sorry, I lost my page here, but uh, uh, Batikravna, Batikravna, right? They, 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 they come close. Um, and that is, you know, in juxtaposition to, you know, other instances in recent chapters of, you know, of, of approaching Moses, right? So Korach is Vayikach Korach Vayakumu, right? That Korach took and, uh, and, and got up. Right and uh, and that's actually similar language that's used for Pinchas. Right, Pinchas is vayikach. He took his spear, uh, vayakum. Right, and he got up uh, to do something. Um, and maybe there's actually a connection there that the mm. Torah is trying to point out between Pinchas's action and, and Korach's action. Uh, the um, when the Israelites uh, in uh, Parshat Chukat last week uh, uh, rebel against Moses, uh, it says uh, it says. Um, Vayarev ha'am im Moshe, right? That the people quarreled with Moses, right? So these, this, the, I, I wonder about this, right? Especially for our moment when, when there's so much upheaval and a lot of the conversation focuses on um, how people rise up uh, in, in addition to what they are rising up about. Um, in your view, um, is it because of the way in which the daughters of Tzalafachad stood up for their rights? that their claim was validated or was it the claim, the justness of the claim itself, or is it some combination of the two? I think it's probably a combination of the two. I don't think that you can, I mean, I certainly would hope that you can't pull one over on God just by approaching it in, in, in like a, you know, appropriate way uh, or a way that God deems worthy. Um, but I do think that approach matters. And, and I don't say that as someone who, um, you know, doesn't believe in angry protest. But I, I more say it as just a sense of like, it's important to be attentive to that and to be intentional about that. And, um, and I think sometimes protests that might be, you know, ways that are not, you know, deferential or calm might be appropriate in certain circumstances. But I do think it's important to always be thinking about that piece of it. Like what's right. going to make it possible for people to, uh, you know, just what's going to be effective, what's going to make it possible for people to engage. Now, maybe it's not how do you know, thinking about the person you're approaching always, maybe it's thinking about how are other people going to join me? I, I don't know. You know, I think we need to be attentive to like different uh, directions, not just the people you might be protesting against or appealing to, but also other people in the community. So there are different kinds of ways of thinking about that, that intentionality, but I think it is an important piece. Right, and it's, I think it's important to note that uh, you know that the daughters of Tzalafchad, uh don't strike me as deferential here, right? I mean, what they're doing is is uh, I think fairly described as confrontational, um, but it's it's direct, you know, and uh, um, that the that it goes straight to the the person in power uh, and uh, and and you know, makes a makes a demand of uh, of the person in power uh, doesn't necessarily fight against him but um but is is clear and direct in in what the in what the ask is you know it always reminds me of uh what frederick Douglass said which is power gives up nothing without a demand mm -hmm. and i think it's important that they approach together you know I, it's interesting to me that they are because you can imagine a scenario where they are referred to just as the daughters of Slochat and you don't hear their individual names i think it's actually pretty important that they're named each individually and at the same time you don't hear about any individual you know, you don't hear this sort of like internal debate around like, should we do this? I don't know. Is this the right way? You know, you don't hear the conversation among them. But there's a sense that these are five 
individuals who also approach together firmly united. And I think that's that's important also, as opposed to the other you know stories where you sort of have Pinchas like as a lone actor. Um, there's a sense here that there's strength in their collectivity. Well, that's a that's a beautiful. Uh, idea and image to uh, to to uh, conclude on perhaps uh, so uh, we uh, this has been an incredible conversation you have been uh, wonderful and gracious with your time and with your wisdom and and insights uh, and I, I, we'd love to uh, continue the conversation maybe we could have a whole conversation as I mentioned before about uh, unpacking Hamilton uh, but um, do you have a, a, any final thoughts that you want to leave us with um, before we move on this morning? Um. Well, just to thank you for inviting me, this was really a great way to engage with the Torah portion. That's one thing I miss about uh, Shabbat in quarantine is being able to really, uh, you know, he hear the the, the Torah in, in this kind of engaged way. And I guess my my challenge to all of you is to um, think about the, you know, the, the voices of women, even when they don't appear in the Parsha. I think that's, as I said at the beginning, that's one of the things that this reminds us it kind of like brings us up short to remind us like oh right we haven't heard these voices for a while um and i think it hopefully we can carry that memory with us and realize that just like sarah Farasher is wandering through the pages of the torah and all of these stories whether she's named or not um so too are so many other people whose vo names we don't know and whose voices we don't hear and to you know kind of be turning our attention to them as much as we can between the lines well Thank you for unearthing uh, those stories that need to be told and those voices that aren't uh, often uh, heard enough from. Uh, and, uh, and thank you so much for being with us this morning and, and sharing of your uh, wisdom and your insights and love to uh, do this again soon. So great to be with you and great to see you. Thank you so much. This was so fabulous. I really appreciate it. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.